This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. Thank you for joining us today on Demo Crises. I am very pleased to be joined today by sociobiologist, futurist, and author Rebecca Costa. Rebecca spent four decades in Silicon Valley working at the cutting edge of technology with clients such as Hewlett-Packard, Apple, Oracle, GE, and others. In 2004, she left Silicon Valley and spent six years researching a book called The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse, which I read, and it's excellent. She puts forward some urgent and sophisticated ideas about civilizational collapse, which we discussed in our last episode and which we'll definitely get into today. And then two years ago, she published On the Verge, in which she discusses the value of acting preemptively to prevent damage when we're pretty sure a problem is going to happen on scales both global and personal. And so, Rebecca Costa, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. So as I read your books, it's, it's my impression that you look at the data of where both American society and global society are heading, and you're rather worried that we're repeating the mistakes of all the previous civilizations that have collapsed. So in brief, how precarious do you believe are the trajectories for both American society and the world? Well, <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, I started my work 10 years ago on, on working on uh, the watchman's rattle, and little did I know, fast forwarding 10 years ahead, that uh, the pattern that I had laid out in that book was materializing. And of course, immediately people started putting the label futurist on me. Um, I, I'm, I don't consider myself a futurist so much as a person who looks for patterns. I have a rather uh, a way of thinking algorithmically that's uh, in my DNA. And so I think you can look at past patterns and current patterns and trends, and it gives you a, a, a sense of a high probability of what to expect next. And as you know, uh, what I was studying was not so much the cataclysmic event that causes a civilization to go into a radical correction or a collapse. Uh, when I say a collapse, I, I don't mean that we're all going to die. I just mean that institutional systems, uh, they revert to a level that our brains can handle. So uh, as in the case right now of Venezuela, for example, they're going through a, 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 a massive correction. Uh, and that correction is causing them to um, instead of deal with credit default swaps, which nobody even on Wall Street can explain or understand, and I certainly don't have a brain enough big enough to understand it, um, they've reverted to barter. You know, uh, I have some carrots, you have some eggs, we meet in the street, we bicker a little bit, and we both think we got the better of the deal and leave. And that's about uh, what we can handle at this particular point in time. So when I started to work on this book, uh, I was interested in all of the conditions that lead up to a, a vulnerability for an event, a cataclysmic event to uh, cause collapse. And, uh, and as you know, I lay out a pattern of behavior that societies, going back to the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Ming Empire, the Khmer Empire, they all exhibited certain symptoms before they collapsed. And the most important one of those symptoms is that public leaders and public policy began to become highly irrational and not based on empirical data. 
Yeah, that sounds rather familiar. So in your, in your book, you call that the cognitive threshold, which I think is uh, of all the ideas in your book, of which there are several that I really enjoyed and we'll get into, I found the cognitive threshold the most poignant. Can you define for the audience what is the cognitive threshold? Well, as you know, I was trained as an evolutionary biologist, and sadly, social progress begins to accelerate, and along with social progress accelerating, complexity begins to exponentiate. And as that begins to happen, uh, the complexity of day-to-day processes, uh, everything from you know a 75,000-page IRS code to the types of legislation that nobody can really understand to uh, how currency is valued and how the stock market operates and and all of these financial uh, vehicles that nobody can explain and nobody knows how they work. Um, These things begin to get so complicated that it becomes impossible for the human brain to wrap our arms around it. And so what happens in the absence of being able to access facts or even comprehend them with the meager prehistoric brain that we have, we quickly uh, become unable to distinguish an empirical fact from an unproven belief or an opinion. And it's when a society, uh, when the, the complexities required to function in a society exceed the capabilities of the actual human brain, that these phenomena begin to appear. And that's the cognitive threshold. It's it's what our brains were designed to understand versus what society requires us to understand in order to make empirically-based, fact-based decisions. Right. It's it's clear that many things are accelerating, right? Exponential growth starts slowly in it, but it, as things double every year, as you know, Moore's law in computing is that the the power of computing doubles every year. At, at the beginning, that moves slowly, but once it starts to accelerate, you're saying that it goes past our, our, our brain's ability to adapt and internalize all this new information. And it's true. To understand modern politics, you have to understand, in theory, everything from sophisticated economics to uh, complex climate models to climate change to, um, to quantum mechanics to a lot of to, to financial derivatives that you mentioned. And, and you say that 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 uh, humans start to replace, um, as you just said, uh, facts with beliefs. And you mentioned in one of your books that the Mayans are a great example of this, that the Mayans originally dealt with water uh, challenges for a long time. And then when their population got so big and their problems really started to accelerate, they switched in favor of something that didn't work as well. Can you, and, and especially specifically human sacrifice, which also didn't work. Can you tell us a little bit about how we know that that's what happened? Well, sure. For 3,000 years, you know, the Mayan civilization was uh, pretty much thriving. Well, actually, 2,000 of those 3,000 years. And they knew that they had a tenuous relationship with rainfall. If they didn't have rainfall, they couldn't grow the crops to support the population. Uh, And so during the early years when the Mayan civilization was thriving, you can see that in addition to uh, building massive reservoirs and underground cisterns, they were the first to discover refrigeration. They were taking food and storing it in cool uh, cisterns that were underground and storing water to keep it from evaporating. And and they were incredible hydraulic engineers. Um, And we know this from from archeological evidence. 
that in addition to doing all of these, you know, man-made remedies, if you will, to make sure that they had water and, and preserved water, they were also in parallel with that conducting human sacrifice. And generally that human sacrifice was captured slaves or enemies that they were sacrificing to the gods to make sure that it continued to rain. But you can see that after about 2,500 years, as drought conditions began to really have an effect on their civilization, uh, that they stopped building the reservoirs and they were no longer digging underground cisterns. They were not doing crop rotations. And they began to re rely exclusively on, uh, on human sacrifice. And they moved away from slaves to sacrificing the old and the infirm in their civilization. And finally, toward the end of the Mayan civilization, they were sacrificing newborn infants as unspoiled sacrifice to the gods to get the rains to return. And so they made a turn away from rational uh, means to highly irrational uh, means that uh, to bring the, the rain back. And this is what happens in every civilization. You know, there's a period of time when they're thriving, when they are relying on empirical evidence and some irrational uh, rituals and procedures. It's pretty typical that they're running both strategies. And that's fascinating. And you mentioned um, about the different different ages of the people that were sacrificed. We know this from the archaeologic records of the bones. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and we actually know which were captured slaves, which were infants, and the approximate, uh, you know, dating of those bones and remains. And uh, that, and interestingly, that's also a method of population control. And, and of course, their population had grown exponentially by this point. And and actually, in Africa, even today, that when when people are declared witches, they tend to be old women during periods of drought or famine. When the population could also be uh, that when when reducing the population would help. So it, those things are probably related. Um, but y your point about switching from sort of fact based solutions to um, belief-based solutions or sort of irrational uh, solutions is pretty scary for those of us who, you know, those millennials of us that, that look at climate change and see all the data and are really concerned about it. And people that in America today, they just, they choose not to believe it, even though the evidence is overwhelming in front of them. And I imagine this must have happened in the Maya or the Khmer as, as certain members of the society must have recognized that, um, they were running out of water and they probably said something about it. And, and yet, you know, it seems that either they, they didn't get enough traction or their leaders uh, poo-pooed them and, and were able to persuade the masses that human sacrifice was a better option. I mean, as, as you look at the climate change debate or maybe other debates, do you see echoes of that in American society? Well, absolutely. You know, at a certain point, uh, who amongst us is qualified to look at the actual scientific data on climate change and make a determination which methodologies are superior, which are inferior, and who is right about human contribution versus the natural uh, occurrence of climate change? I, I mean, I know scientists on the left and right are practically religious about how they feel about climate change, but I am a scientist and I am capable of looking at the data. And I can tell you that we we cannot say with, with precise certainty how much human activity is contributing. Uh, we, we don't have enough uh, data or evidence to know that. Uh, but, you know, I, I have to weigh in on the side of better safe than sorry. If something can kill me, I'm gonna err on the safety side. 
you know, and so I, I, I think that the whole argument has been a silly one and people are not trained or qualified. You know, the best example I can give you of complexity is, you know, I, I hope this doesn't happen to people, but it's inevitable it'll happen to them or someone in their family gets diagnosed with a rare disease. Uh, you know, you go on the internet and for every five reports, you uh, medical reports, you can get about one that says one thing about a disease. You'll find 20 others that say the exact opposite. And how many people have a medical degree that can get through that, uh, that, that kind of uh, research? So, you know, it's, it's just gotten beyond us. And we have to acknowledge that. Evolu there are two clocks, evolution, the, the evolution of our physiology, and that moves rather slow. There are exceptions to that, but as a general rule, uh, you know, we don't develop new appendages just because we have more features in our car. Uh, in fact, we had to make laws to convince people they couldn't drive a 10-ton vehicle and drink their coffee and text at the same time. You know, we're, we're not willing to accept the fact that from an evolutionary standpoint, our bodies are rather Neanderthal. They're, they're not progressing as fast as they need to in order to uh, function in a rational uh, uh, world right now. According to uh, Eric Schmidt, the head of Google, we're generating as much data every two days as we generated from the dawn of humankind to year 2003. That just means Friday we go home from work and Monday morning that entire body of data has been recreated. So I want to keep up with that. I want to get yeah, it's it's daunting. And so I want to get to solutions in a minute. But first I just want to hone in on the point. So do you feel the chance of a real societal let's say tragedy is greater than 50% if we don't find a way to solve that problem? I think it's a 50-50 horse race right now that we use artificial intelligence and other technologies to get out ahead of this, or we just go the way everybody else has gone in the past and we experience a rather painful correction. Yeah. And so, I mean, can you, can you put it in real terms? What would a correction, let's say in the United States where we both live, what would that correction look like if you look at, say, certain historical examples? Well, uh, seven years ago, I wrote a very controversial article about immigration. And at the time, not a lot of people paid attention to it. Now everybody's paying attention to it. And I said, what is the plan for when tens of millions of people begin migrating northward for water, for food and water? And because even today, the largest migration of human population is underway. A lot of people listening to this podcast don't even know about it. Well, how could we not know the largest migration in human history is underway? It's not the migration of the Syrians. It's the, uh, you know, to, to Europe, it's the migration of people from rural areas into urban areas. All urban centers are overrun with people from rural areas moving in there. So, you know, we know these trends and we're not responding to them. We're just kind of putting our head in the sand and, and saying, well, you know, are we gonna put up money for a wall or not? 
it's really ridiculous. All right, so you, acting, you, we are really acting like the Mayan leaders, the Ming leaders, the Khmer leaders. We're we're not really all that different. I'm so glad you brought up the Ming because the Ming is very much uh, our our favorite episode from episode one, the inaugural episode of this of this uh, podcast. You brought up so much. I want to follow up on. Um, the first is you mentioned artificial intelligence, right? And so in in your second book, um, which I read over the weekend. Uh, you, you talk about how the the time when Watson, the computer, uh, took on Jeopardy and won was was a seminal moment. I mean, he the, a computer uh, scanned all the data, uh, you know, in, in the Internet for a period of time and then was able to be, you know, with, complete with puns and everything. He's able to assimilate all that information. And I'm a physician and I know that it is so hard to keep up on all of the information that's coming out. There are there are so many journals, thousands, tens of thousands of journals publishing all these different studies. How do you possibly detect which uh, which oncology study, which cancer treatment is better than the others? And the solution in oncology, I believe, is definitely artificial intelligence. And you you say the same thing. So let's talk about the future a little bit and see if we can harness artificial intelligence a little bit, which I, I, I agree with you is, is key to that. In our last episode, we talked about this concept of where we're going as a society. If we avoid collapse, what's the alternative? And the alternative is a so-called type one civilization, a planetary civilization that gets a handle on all of humans, uh, all of humanity's lesser tendencies to overpopulate, to s- replace facts with beliefs, to, uh, re- to focus on walls instead of the real problems. Um, and and it says that we've got about the, the science says we've got about 100 years before we completely destroy the earth as as is happening with climate change and deforestation and the mass extinctions that are going on. So can you tell us, can you just talk a little bit about the goal of type civil type one civilization? And and do you agree that's the goal? And, and how what what is the big if you had to pick one thing that if you you know, you could persuade your senator to care about unless you become a senator and then which one would you really make your priority to, to get us toward type one and avoiding uh, that civilizational collapse? Well, you know, this is going to really sound too radical and for people, I, I think what I'm about to say, that's okay but, with us. We need it. All right. But, but, you know, I'll, since you've asked the question and, you know, I always tell people, don't ask me questions you don't want the answer to, cause I'm going to just tell you, but, for those people who have an Alexa at home, uh, if you're standing there and somebody says something, you're playing Scrabble and you say something's a word and you go, no, it's not. And you scream across the room, Alexa, is such and such a word, spell it, right? Alexa comes back. Who do you trust? Do you trust your opponent that you're playing in Scrabble? Do you trust your own memory? Uh, or do you trust Alexa? The issue of what information you're going to trust is going to come to bear here. And this is where artificial intelligence can help us. I would say that the days when you can trust human intelligence have left us. We have to trust machine intelligence because machine intelligence doesn't have skin in the game. It isn't trying to win. It isn't trying to manipulate, at least now. <laughs> it's not trying to manipulate. Machine intelligence is going out all over the internet and coming back with the best solution, the best probable answer. So when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence in medicine, today we know, according to IBM, you would have to, a physician would have to read journals, medical journals, only articles in their field 70 hours a week 
in order to stay current in their field. That's impossible. Yes, it is. It's impossible <laughs> I know. to I do know. it. So, you, so do you want to trust what a physician says or do you want a physician to be assisted, not make the decision, but assisted by artificial intelligence so that when you come in with a barrage of very bizarre symptoms that your physician may or may not be acquainted with, he can put in all your test results, put in all the, the information you're able to provide, and, and then have a computer come back and say, look, it's 90% this person has this, it's 85% they have this, it's 70% they have this. And by the way, and this is where artificial intelligence and machine learning really helps, it will come back and tell the physician, but you know, if you got me this next piece of information, I could increase the probability of my diagnosis by 85%. So go look here, get this for me. And it will instruct people. Now, if you think about that kind of technology, it doesn't matter if you have the best, most experienced physician in the world or an ignoramus uh, med student. It doesn't matter because everybody, it's like the water rising and everything floating at the top rises with it. This is the power artificial intelligence has. It's not going to make decisions and, and you know, uh, on behalf of other human beings, and maybe one day it will. So if there was one thing that will be a telling sign as to whether we're going to experience a radical correction or not, it is the extent to which humans are willing to trust machines over other humans. All right. So there is, again, there's a lot I want to follow up on there. So I'm going to resist the the um, the reflexive, uh, you know, concern about how much we want to let machines control our lives. We'll get to that later. Um, the first thing I just want to say about what your point about medicine is, is in short, that I agree. Um, again, I mentioned there's so many studies that come out um, depending on the disease. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence is a bigger value add than others. Um, we are starting starting to implement this in electronic medical records um, where it, it prompts you for very specific things um, down to which antibiotic is appropriate in a particular case. We're already using that, and it probably is helping um, um, to have better patient outcomes. So I, I just want to say that that I agree, and, and in medicine especially, especially if I have cancer, I want artificial intelligence involved. I'll tell you that right now. But you, the bigger point here is you say humani humanity's got to have to start to trust machine intelligence, and that is a shift in societal values. And I think that is the key topic that we have to talk about. You wrote it in your book. Jared Diamond wrote about it in his book about collapse, about how crucial societal values are. And just to, just to refresh everyone's memory, sometimes societal values are good at the start of society, and then they become a problem later. Um, for example, the, the um, freedom to overpopulate. It's really good if you need to outbreed your nearest competitor and fight them in a war. But if you then have limited resources and you keep overpopulating, you'll collapse like the Mayans did. So in your recent book, you talked about how the population of Egypt went from 40 million in 1980 to 95 million today. The exponential population growth got out of control, and that would have required Hosni Mubarak to have essentially doubled the number of jobs and infrastructure in an already poor place. And so when the Arab Spring happens and everyone looks at Egypt, a society that's mostly a desert, and asks how come uh, Hosni Mubarak couldn't 
you know, help his population and doesn't talk about the fact that the population essentially doubled in size, they're not confronting a societal value that nobody wants to talk about because of religion. And I'll finish my filibuster with this. In your in the Watchman's Rattle, you mentioned five societal values that you think are are really a problem in modern 21st century society. They might have been good in the past. And my favorite one is what you call, quote, extreme economics. And you, as I summarize extreme economics, it's basically uh, the idea that you should apply economic principles to everything. If you make a profit, it's good, no matter how much damage you cause. Let's say you sell a beverage, maybe with alcohol or lots of sugar, that is addictive and it hurts a lot of people, causes a lot of harm, but you make a profit. We consider that okay. And I don't I don't think that's okay. I don't think it's okay that Facebook can help to help the Russians essentially, you know, influence an election because they made profit. And other people don't either. Without getting into the details of that, I want to talk about um, societal values and switching them. So can you can you either expand on either extreme economics as a societal values we have to change or a different societal value, maybe ones we talked about, maybe not? Because I think the, the key to our saving our society is figuring out which societal values are not helpful and reversing them. I, I agree about the societal values a, a great deal. I think what happens is is that we get into a certain mindset and we have a heck of a time trying to get out of it. And the one that we're trapped in right now is that economics drives everything. So it doesn't matter if you're a hospital or you're a nonprofit or or you're a for-profit business. Uh, you're judging whether something is good to do or bad to do based on uh, the economic ramifications. And that's causing a lot of problem for us right now because it doesn't really work when you take MBA school, you know, economic models for ROI and try to tra- transpose them onto uh, uh, education, right? It doesn't work when you try to take those business models and you bring in administrative staff and you say, this hospital has to run profitably. When there's absolutely, if in order to give the best quality care, that's not possible. Uh, it's just not possible. They are conflicting values. And so at some point, the society has to get sophisticated enough to say that this, that, the, that economics cannot drive, that's not the only business model. It's not the only viable business model. And we have to have other viable business models probably created by economists and propagated by economists um, uh, and, and so that so that we we can that that they're viable and they're acceptable and we don't have those business models presently um, and so it's creating a lot of consternation uh, for organizations where where uh, those models create conflict uh, and in medicine you know it's it's a pretty obvious one but you could look at education and you could look at homeless populations and you know and you can look at a lot of uh, uh, problems that are are value uh, derived so that's just one but we have a lot of other kinds of um, uh, what I call super memes beliefs and trends that we follow this is why I am a big advocate of artificial intelligence. I think it's happening organically 
everybody knows what a search engine is. Everybody, you know, if they don't know directions or they uh, need a need to know when a whether they're they remembered when a movie started on time, they go to their mobile phones and they check, and pretty much they trust what they see from certain information sources. And so I think this trusting of machines is becoming more and more viable. And now with these new humanoids, like Hanson Robotics has Sophia. I'm just recently on a stage with Sophia and she has synthetic skin and, and she has 53 muscles in her face and she nods her head and she her eyebrows go up and she smiles. and. And she even has default settings. When she doesn't understand a question, she nods and says, indeed, hmm. you know, and, and empathizes with you. And, and, I, and I think that we'll, this, as humanoids become more and more popular and the interface uh, becomes friendlier, we'll begin to trust uh, what machines tell us more than we will humans. And this will be the platform from which we will get to type one. Okay, great. And so, um, you know, I, w I would like to talk about uh, an issue that dovetails both of the things you just mentioned. So if we're going to get society to change societal values, I think the media has is, is a clear um, key role in that because the media conveys information to the average person as well as shapes opinions. Unfortunately, our media is captured by extreme economics. In other words, no matter what it takes – to um, to get eyeballs, you know, whether it's the latest uh, gun massacre or whatever is happening with the president um, and the shutdown. Right. I mean, in the last month we lost to day at blow by blow shutdown coverage. Meanwhile, you know, probably a few animals went extinct in that period of time. Venezuela descended into complete chaos um, and I, we could list other things. Um, and so I want to I want to ask you about both changing because the media is one place that's both trapped and key to changing societal values. And you say it's happening organically, but we don't have time, I would argue, to wait for things to happen organically. So, I mean, how can we uh, as a society accelerate reasonability? Well, when everybody is doing something, you have congestion in the market and you don't have any uh, brand separation, right? So uh, I see this as a wonderful opportunity for some media outlet to step in, to differentiate themselves and to capture tremendous dollars in advertising. What we have to understand is, is the media isn't really in the media business. They're in the, we have to put content up in order to sell advertising. They're in the selling advertising business. They're not yeah, there to yeah. give you news. They're only there giving you news so that you'll watch them. They'll have enough numbers to present to an advertiser to charge the highest possible price to put advertising on their programming. But the programming is a means to an end. So because that economic model has been set up, and by the way, you know, when you and I were children, uh, that wasn't the case. The newsroom didn't have anything to do with advertising. It wasn't treated like regular programming. Now what has happened is that didn't make money. News didn't make money. The evening news with uh, Brinkley and, and, uh, and, and all the old guys, they, they, it didn't make any money. And, it, and that wasn't their goal. And, and there was a separation between church and state. It's not the case anymore. Now all programming must be profitable. So if you start to say news has to be profitable, well, of course, you're going to, you know, your lead story is going to be Justin Bieber cut his hair. 
I mean, this this is this is the way we are as human beings. So, uh, you know, but but think of it. If everybody's doing it, that's a that's a wonderful market condition, because you know, if everybody's doing things one way and you can separate yourself and dis and and distinguish yourself, it makes it very easy to do that. And so, I believe that there will be another CNN type of radical media outlet that will rise above partisan politics and sort of, uh, you know, the uh, accident on the side of the road reporting. Yeah. And I, actually I, I do believe that will happen. Yeah. And we're, we're hoping podcasting is part of that. Um, and actually I just want to podcasting is, I think it could be because, um, so I want to plug in, in episode seven, you know, we talked about Teddy Roosevelt and how Teddy Roosevelt faced all of our similar challenges today and yet managed to overcome it. And the secret ingredient he had was an investigative magazine called McClure's that figured out a way to sell its magazine at a profit at only 15 cents an issue, making it accessible to the average person, whereas the typical magazine then was 35 cents an issue and therefore only only the rich could routinely afford it. And so when he broke through that, it basically – the, all the great journalism in that particular article touching on human emotions um, – uh, allowed uh, because they were so they were suffering and they didn't exactly understand why and his magazine understood it that's what broke through and he really filled that niche and started a whole uh, age of investigative journalism that helped Teddy Roosevelt save the country and I, I would argue we need to do that now and certainly podcasting given its free nature um, is is an opportunity for that um, I just want to yeah, take a and I, and go I, ahead just to add to that we we're kind of in a stagnation right now right CNN has taken up the banner for the left and Fox has taken up the banner for the right and and everybody else MSNBC and everybody else has kind of fallen in between those two polarized uh, networks and okay that that's fine but remember that under those conditions they're right for somebody to come along and create a, a, a different alternative and fundamentally and this is to our advantage by the way human beings are novelty seeking organisms you know we tire of and we acclimate very quickly to new experiences and so i think that you know we're kind of tiring of this we're we're reaching kind of the end of this partisan news reporting and now something else will emerge to take its place. And it may be podcasts and it may who knows what it'll be. Yeah. And what we need what we need is for artificial intelligence to search all the five hundred thousand podcasts and promote demo crises to the top of it so that people will hear really good researched content. And then the other thing I just want to follow up on and what you said, you know, we've our news media 50 years ago, it was Edward Murrow and Walter Cronkite. And, and people that everyone respected reporting on facts. And we replaced people like that with Sean Hannity. And if you need one uh, piece of evidence for what has gone wrong in our politics, in my opinion, that's it. So we're talking about the future. And your most recent book is about the future. And you mention it in On the Verge um, about how we're, we're getting pretty good at predicting that something is about to happen even though we still kind of let it happen instead of um, pre acting preventatively. Can you just tell us the thesis of your most recent book? Well, I'll tell you how it all started. I, I happened to be at uh, uh, a university and I was watching a demonstration of uh, a, a Fitbit-like device on a person's ankle. And it was designed to be able to anticipate whether a person was going to trip and fall within the next week. And I thought, this is fascinating. 
and and what we've learned is is that um, there's a precursor before you're going to trip and fall and hurt yourself, and that is that your regular walking gait changes somewhere between three and five centimeters, and it's indiscernible by the human eye. It's it's a change that you wouldn't even notice. And that that generally occurs sometime in the time window of one week before you're going to trip and fall. And and this really got me fascinated. And I said, well, gosh, we're getting to a point where we know what's going to happen. And how will society deal with this? And around the time I was seeing that, I, I this was when Stephen Paddock opened, you know, he was the uh, the shooter who opened up fire in at uh, concert goers in um, Las Vegas. And I remember looking at that, and I remember just looking at a lot of different data where we knew what was going to happen before it happened. Uh, as they, as whenever there's a mass shooting, we, we backtrack. And we suddenly see that they, you know, the shooter announced it on Facebook. And in uh, Stephen Paddock's case, uh, he was put on diazepam about six months ahead of time. He uh, started accelerating his purchase of weapons. He bought tracer rounds for uh, evening shooting. He sent his uh, live-in girlfriend away, gave her $100,000, told her not to come back to the United States. Started. I mean, there, there. He, he, his father was a uh, uh, a, uh, a dangerous, uh, wanted by the FBI uh, criminal. Uh, and a sociopath, and that's a hereditary um, personality trait. And and so we know that these are heritable traits, and we we know all of this. And when you added all the stuff up about Stephen Paddock, uh, you could see the guy was headed toward criticality. I mean, you you'd only need to take you know one year of psychology to say, hey, this guy's he headed for the danger zone just from his behaviors and his actions. But the real question that we're faced with is, well, everybody's probably seen the movie Minority Report. I mean, what are you going to have? The precog police go in and arrest him before he's ever done anything? I mean, there, there's a part of us that wants to say, well, Stephen Paddock, he got the hotel room, and let's say he took his the butt of his gun and he broke the window and he actually pointed the gun at the crowd. He could have changed his mind. And he could have sat back down on the bed and put the gun away and said, I'm not going to do that. I came close, but I'm not going to do it. So we have this, we're, we're living in this world where our ability to anticipate when you're going to fall, whether a shooter is reaching criticality, uh, you know, uh, who, what children at, you know, literally by age two, we can identify children that are prone to become sociopaths, dangerous ones. Uh, what? How is society going to respond to this? What are we prepared to do? So let's let's use our remaining time to get into that question because that's the most controversial thing. Couple things I want to say. First one about this: we can anticipate when you're going to fall. I believe one of in something you, you wrote. We now can predict that with 86 percent certainty. So as a doctor, you know you work in the emergency room. The amount of elderly patients that come in after a fall and it just wrecks their life. It racks up a ton of medical bills. They suffer a lot. Suddenly the family's life has changed. If we could prevent falls in the elderly, the amount of taxpayer money in Medicare we could save is, is off the charts. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, we could put a sensor in their phone that would detect um, your gait is five centimeters per second slower or something like that. 
and or whatever the metric is. And and I would support that. And I I, th- I don't think you find a doctor on earth that would that would not support that. Sure, you could tell him get into physical therapy right now. You're getting ready to fall. Or give him a walker or something, or both. Yeah, yeah and of course, absolutely. Uh, or, Even airbags. They have airbags on a belt. That well, that using uh, air, uh, automotive airbag technology. That if you fall, they immediately implode. So that that's an easy one. Now let's get to the tougher one of right. So everyone's going to say, well, I don't trust machines. So. Uh, I want to say a couple of things. So right now we're in a very skeptical society. We've been trained to do that by Fox News, who's for 20 years tried to beat up on the scientists of climate change so that the funders of Fox News can keep making all the money. And that's a bit conspiratorial, but still probably totally accurate. Um, but but in terms of this question of how do we get our society to trust machines more, there is a valid concern that whoever designs those machines could manipulate them or they could be hacked maybe. Um, by the Russians or or the Iranians or something like that, and then use and then the artificial intelligence could really could really be dangerous. I want to say one thing. One thing I've noticed a lot is a lot of difficult decisions are about trade offs. You have to treat. You know, there is no perfect answer. Sometimes you have to trade one cost for another, and I think that's kind of where we are here. But do you have any thoughts? I mean, what we I think what we'd have to do is we'd have to pilot some simple artificial intelligence things like the walking gate to prove that this is helpful and safe. Um, we'd probably have to get a lot of evidence behind it. The media is going to have to start doing a better job. I, I agree. I mean, we're trying to break into the media space to fill the niche that CNN demurred on when they spent a year covering Malaysia Flight 370, which I consider one of the greatest derelictions of duty in American history instead of the other things that caused Donald Trump's rise. And so I, I think what we have to do is start small and, and probably AI is moving exponentially to the point where it's not going to be small pretty soon. And then over time, Maybe you pilot things at a state level and people can get used to the idea. And another another great insight you had in your book is what you often want to do is align human incentives with human nature. That's your role as a sociobiologist, right? You understand that incentives are much better if humans are already predisposed to do something, if it appeals to their vanity or their desire to procreate, than if it is yeah. antithetical to that. So that's my filibustering about how to sort of get artificial intelligence to be both accepted and uh, helpful, because there is a real chance, I think, that it is that it could be uh, counterproductive. And in our society, where the value is to resist things, you just have to bear in mind that we are Pavlovian by nature. We are designed to repeat things that have been previously successful. And that in and of itself creates resistance and fear of what is new. So we have a uh, we have a, a conflicting relationship with novelty, with anything new. We desire it and need it. And on the other hand, we fear it. So um, how, do, how, do we, uh, how do we break that down? What, what you, about- you, have to, you have to come to terms with it and not allow the fear to dictate whether you move forward or not. And this is something I consult with a lot of corporations on is, you know, eventually as things begin to exp- exponentiate, as you come to terms with the fact that you're making decisions on a minuscule amount of actual available data, as you come to terms with these things, your fear levels rise and the odds are you'll become paralyzed and unable to move forward. And that will only uh, exacerbate the gap between how fast uh, technology and science is progressing and how slow you're moving. 
So, you know, one of the things that you have to do is you have to find ways to forgive yourself if you make a mistake and move forward in spite of your emotions, your emotional resistance. And if I may, so another another thing that could really accelerate this um, is, uh, again, breaking some of our extreme economics ideas. There, There is a lot of research in why don't we get some public funding behind some research in both our, uh, in integrating artificial intelligence into our educational system, into a variety of different parts of our society to to uh, test them. You know, we, we have tight controls on them to to deal with that fear. Um, but there are there are ways to to test things besides letting the market handle it. But my question to you um, is, is what final messages do you have as we confront a, a world that appears to be on its way towards a radical correction, in your words, even though we have the opportunity to build a type one civilization? What final message do you have for the audience today? The final message I would have is, is that our political leaders are out of touch with how fast technology and science is moving. So we may not look there for what the future is going to be like. I think that it's pretty clear to everybody that Google and Amazon and Facebook are have a better handle on what the future might look like than our own uh, than our own political leaders. And public policy will always fall behind uh, technological and scientific progress. So it's more important to pay attention to what machines tell you and what, what, how machines can vet empirical data uh, than it is to listen to political rhetoric. I, I would advise people, I, you know, people are shocked when I tell them I trust robots more than people, and they, they shudder at that thought. And I said, but people are subject to paleolithic emotions. You know, so the last thing I would leave you with is a quote from my dear friend uh, E.O. Wilson, who says we live in a time when we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And I'm going to bet on the godlike technology. And we actually quoted that from your book in episode 12. So on that note, Rebecca Costa, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And thank you for the good work you're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.